If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. We're going to be going through the Beatitudes or the beautiful attitudes of Jesus. And today we're going to be focusing on the second Beatitude, which is happy are those who mourn. And today we're going to talk about this idea of mourning. It doesn't sound like a very interesting subject and something we try to avoid, but this is one of those topics that is very misunderstood in the church of the 21st century. And oftentimes in the church, we have two different extremes with this. One side says that if you are a Christian, then you should never be sad. We see this a lot with prosperity uh, gospel, that you should never be sad, you should never be lonely, you should never be depressed or grieved because Jesus took all that away on Calvary's cross and we should walk around with happy, happy, joy, joy feelings all the time with a permanent smile on our face and show the, the world the joy of the Lord. Then there's the other side that says, well, since Jesus wept over Jerusalem and Jesus wept at uh, Lazarus's grave, and wept over people's sins, that we should always be in mourning over the sin in our own hearts and the sin of the world that we, that we live in. And we couple that with an outside culture, particularly one that we have here in our rural areas, that says that men in particular, we need to be strong. We need to never cry at all. We need to never show emotion and, and, and never show that kind of weakness in front of other people. I remember that my earliest experience with mourning came when I was about seven years old. I had a favorite great uncle die. My uncle Delmer used to watch me when I was in Hayward and my grandparents had to work. And he, him and I would go fishing and hiking a lot in the woods and he taught me a lot about both things, woods and fishing. And he ended up dying in the winter uh, shoveling snow. So he made our trip up to Hayward from Kenosha, where back then that was a major deal because we didn't have as fast of highways and everything else. So it took us over eight hours to get from Kenosha to Hayward. And we went up there to attend his funeral. Even though my parents at that time had separated, they were both there as they knew my Uncle Delmer very well and they liked him. And before we went into the viewing, I remember that my dad pulled me aside. He put both hands on my shoulder and he said, no crying, son. He goes, men don't cry, especially in front of women. He said, your job as a man is to be strong for them so they have someone to cling to during these times of grief. That's your job. And I remember my grandfather came to me at, um, as, I, as I was walking up to, to visit the casket, and he said something very similar as he was holding my hand. Now, your job is to be strong for the women, and you don't cry. So you have to keep that in mind, Johnny. I remember him saying that. He was a strong Norwegian man. My dad was a strong German man. And they had that same kind of idea of manhood. And I still carry some of that to this day, even though I know how foolish that is with biblical Christianity and how prideful that can be. And it definitely doesn't reflect who Jesus is or who he was when he was on this earth. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. And that includes a time of mourning and a time of weeping. So I want to study this, mo this morning the idea of mourning and grief that Jesus introduces us here, or introduces to us here in Matthew chapter 5, which lists the beautiful attitudes of Jesus. Matthew 5 verse 4 says, Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you just take 
this scripture, this, these few words of Jesus, and use it to change the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts when it comes to grief, when it comes to experiencing times of mourning. I ask, Father, that you place within us the true attitude that Jesus tried to teach us and the biblical truth about this experience we have in life that is called mourning. Father, change our hearts today, and I ask this in your name. Amen. Now today I want to look at the biblical idea of mourning and its place within our lives. We're going to start with the difference between a fleshly mourning and a sinful mourning, excuse me, a godly, healthy, spiritually healthy mourning. We will then move on to discuss the value and spiritual benefits of mourning, and then finish with how God uses mourning to bring us into a comfortable place with Him. So let's start with the difference between sinful versus godly mourning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, it says that godly sorrow, or mourning, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now there are two kinds of mourning or sorrow that we can express. One that is healthy and one that is God-centered, and the other one which is deadly and me-centered, and frankly is devil-inspired. We're going to focus on the latter one first. In 1 Kings chapter 21, there's a story about a king in Israel named Ahab. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in, is, in history, in Israel or in the divided kingdom of Judah. His wife was so wicked that the Bible refers to the spirit of wickedness and spiritual rebellion by her name, the Jezebel spirit, or the spirit of Jezebel. Ahab is in his palace in this story in, in 1 Kings chapter 21. Ahab's in his palace in the city of Samaria and decides that he wants to expand his already expansive gardens a little bit. And he looks over and he sees a, a plot of property that he really wants. He thinks that will just, just complete his garden that he wants. The problem is, is that property isn't his. It belongs to a man named Naboth. Ahab goes to Naboth and offers him a deal. He goes, sell me your land. I'll pay the top price for it. Or if you don't want money for it, let's do a trade. I have this other vineyard over here that's twice as good as that one. I just need this plot of land to make me happy. Now many of, this, now, or many of the people in this county have had this deal thrown at them lately, haven't they? The sand mines have come in. They've bought property from people. And they've given them very, very good money for it. Even if that land's been in their families for several generations, they've gone ahead and sold that. The difference is, though, is in Israel that God commanded that the land that they had had to stay in those families forever. That was their, their, the law of God for them. And they could sell this land temporarily, but every 50 years, that sale would be null and void and it would go back to the original owners. Now, Naboth, knowing the character of Ahab, knows that if he sells Ahab this land, during that year of Jubilee where all those debts are canceled and all those sales are void and all that land would be returned to his family, he knows that knowing the character of Ahab, this ain't going to happen. Ahab is going to keep this forever because he's not going to follow the law of God. So he refuses to sell him this land because he's trying to follow Scripture. He's trying to honor God in every part of his life. And the Bible records Nahab's response, or excuse me, Ahab's response. It says, So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth 
the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Ahab lay on his bed sulking and refusing to eat. Now Ahab has a pretty strong reaction, an extreme reaction, to a person who actually does what is the right thing. And this act of a sinful mindset is that that is only focused on personal gratification. Sorrow has been produced in Ahab's life by a person's refusal to meet his selfish need. And it wasn't even really a need. I mean, let's face it, Ahab is king, isn't he? He's already one of the richest people in the nation. He already has huge gardens, a huge palace, swaths of property. He has an iron-fisted control over his whole domain. And he has one of the most beautiful women in the country, albeit one of the most evil women in the country, as his wife. He has everything a man could ever want except for this little patch of land over here. And it eats at him and it just it, it creates this, the, the, this trouble in his spirit. And he goes back to his palace and kicks the dog, yells at his servants and goes and sulks in his room. Acting like a teenager, isn't he? And his wife sees his reaction and mocks him, makes fun of him, says, you're the king, why are you, why are you even bothering to ask him if he can have the land? I'll get you that land. And she conspires to have Naboth killed and his land stolen. This is an example of worldly sorrow producing death in our lives. And you think that this might be a pretty extreme example, but honestly, if we think about it, how much of our depression, how much of our anger, how much of our guilt, and how much of our bad attitudes at times come from not having our wants met? I would dare say that most of the sorrow we have in life comes from a want not being met in our lives. And notice I use the word want there and not a need. A want is a selfish desire. Like, I want a new compound bow or I want a new crossbow because I want to go bow hunting this year. That's a want. I'm trying to convince Tammy that it is a need, but she's, she's, she, we're not on that same page of music yet. Because a need is something that actually produces life. We need to have shelter. We need to have food. It's something that, that contributes to our life. And the line between these two can become blurred, can't it? Between wants and needs. I once had a Christian co-worker who was newly married, and he and his wife were both in studying or studying in college, going for their bachelor degrees. And every time we took a patient to Milwaukee, we would pass a particular car lot and he would insist we stop on the way back because this car lot had hum hummers on it. Everybody knows what a hummer is? It's that military style vehicle that they made for civilian use. And he had been in the military and he always wanted the civilian version of a Humvee because he thought they were cool. However, in 2003, a brand new Hummer cost at least thirty dollars to $40,000 at that time, depending on how many toys you wanted to put on it. And as a paramedic working for the company that we worked for, he made about 11 bucks an hour. His wife worked at a local doctor's office part-time, and she made about $9 an hour. And again, both of them are in college, and they're living in a fairly nice apartment, so they're, they're making it. But I talked to him, and I said, can you really afford a $40,000 vehicle and the car payment that's going to go with that? I mean, that's, not, I mean, that's almost two-thirds of the mortgage payment I'm paying for my house in Kenosha right now. 
And I talked to him, I said, you really should wait. I said, just, just put it off. I said, let's face it. You guys are a year and a half away from getting your bachelor degrees. After you get your bachelor degrees, you're going to be making a lot more money if you go get jobs you know, within your degree. You're going to be able to afford the toys. You're going to be able to afford to go out and get the truck and the, the cars that you want and different things like that. And I said, and let's face it, Humvees get horrible gas mileage. We're talking like 9, 10 gallons a mile. I mean, the thing runs out of gas before you get around the block. So you're really going to have to spend a lot of money on this car just to get it back and forth to work because you live 25 miles away from work. Well, he got really spiritual with me. He was kind of into the prosperity thing. And he said, I am an American Christian. God wants me to live in prosperity. I do my tithes. I do my offerings. And he knows I need a nicer car. He knows I deserve it as an American. That I, and he will supernaturally provide for this thing. That's what he told me. So they went and they bought it anyway. He told me that they did the math, and him and his wife, they prayed about it, of course. <laughs> and he said that they worked it out. He goes, all I need to do is work two 24-hour shifts a month, and I can afford this car. So he works, it works out that he has to work 48 hours in a row, twice a month, and he'll have enough to pay for this car. And he did pretty well with that for a while. He's in his 20s. He can go for extended periods of time with little or no sleep. And he was handling it pretty well at first. And he was proud to have this Humvee. And then we got an operations manager. The, the upper leadership changed. And this operations manager took a look. And the first thing he did is said, we can't keep spending money on all this overtime. We need to hire part-timers for the open spots in the schedule. Eliminated all overtime. All of a sudden now, he doesn't have that extra income coming in. He has a $600 a month car payment that he can't afford. So he had to take another almost full-time job to make up for the hours that he lost. He got grumpy, he got sullen, as he tried to make enough money to keep his beloved Hummer, but with college tuition and the other costs of life, he eventually ended up losing it to repossession. And he got really, really crabby after that. His whole attitude kind of went in the toilet. And he actually ended up getting fired because he was showing this bad attitude to all of our customers and the patients and everything. And my coworker's experience isn't all that unusual. All of us have probably been guilty at one time or another of overspending on something you really didn't need. Is there anybody here who hasn't done that? Okay, good. I was going to let you trade places with me. If you... <laughs> and that's just focusing on possessions. But let's just take a moment and quiet our spirits so we can hear the Holy Spirit and think, what gets you depressed? What gets you angry? What gets you anxious or fearful in life? Think about that for a second. Because it's usually dealing with a want. Jesus' little brother James says this. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts within you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Confusing a want with a need is the source of most of our sorrow in life, the source of most of our mourning. 
It's a trap of the devil to keep our eyes on what we do not have and convince that our happiness or our joy would just be complete if we could have that one thing. And that one thing might be a possession. That one thing might be a person. That one thing might be a position. It might be changing our situation. It could be health. It could be wealth. It could be whatever whole exists within our spirit or our personality and character that Satan can exploit so he can take your eyes off of God. And that's the worldly sorrow that leads us to death because it takes our eyes off the eternal God and places it on the temporary creation. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, starts and ends with God. It's the morning that ends with peace. It's God saying, give that burden to me and I will give you rest. There is nothing in creation that can satisfy you like I can. Nothing. Take my burden upon you, and you will find peace. For my burden is easy, because I carry the entire load. And that leads us to the value of mourning. And all of us, if we're honest with each other, go through life looking for ways to avoid sorrow. We go looking for ways to avoid mourning. One of the basic tenets of psychology is that most of our human existence revolves around avoiding pain, whether that be physical or emotional pain. And that's why Jesus says, happy are those who mourn. And when we read things like that in the Bible, it creates a confusion within us because it's a paradox to us. <coughs> it's a paradox that needs explaining. There's a spiritual truth that we need to believe and we need to understand, and that is the Holy Spirit is always speaking to us. Always. There is nowhere, there is no time, there is no situation where His voice is silent. Most of the time, we just can't hear Him, or we don't want to hear Him, or we just flat out ignore Him. And that's why very often mourning is our best teacher. Mourning shuts out all the extraneous noise of our life so that our souls become empty and we long to be filled with something at that point. If you're going to break down mourning to its very basic feeling, it is a feeling of emptiness within us, isn't it? Mourning and sorrow exposes to us what we really treasure, both the good and the bad. And we really face this today as we watch the news. With these recent hurricanes, you've been watching the news, and you see two different kind of reactions from people. You see people wailing and rolling on the ground and doing all kind of hysterics because they've lost their house, they've lost their car, they've lost all their possessions, and they're, they're losing their minds. They think that their life is over because all their stuff is gone. And I'm not saying that that wouldn't be hard. I mean, I have some favorite possessions myself. But then you have the other person over here that holds their hand up in the air and says, I should be dead right now. The floodwaters were just hitting the roof and then the Coast Guard copter appeared. They got us off the roof just in time before the floodwaters swept me away. I thank God he preserved my life. All that other stuff, I can get more. Amen. And these bad times, this time of mourning, clarified within these people what was important in life. And it also clarifies to us what is important to God. Now, 
obviously I'm on social media a lot because I talk some about it. And there's a meme out right now. A meme is just a picture that tries to express a thought. And it's a picture, that, it's a meme that shows pictures of the Pacific Northwest and it shows California and all the wildfires that are going on out there right now. There's 220 square miles on fire right now between California, Oregon, and Washington. It shows the Houston um, devastation and some of it in Louisiana, the future um, stuff that's about to happen in Florida. Um, St. Martin in the Caribbean had 90% of their structures completely destroyed by the latest hurricane. So it's somewhere I've always wanted to visit, and now it's a, it's a pile of rubble. And this meme asks you to pray for these people, and we should. There sh and we should be praying for their people. I mean, there's something about it, though, that made me take a step back and think about the effects of these storms on our society. And the first effect I thought of was how many news stories have you heard in the last week, week and a half, about how racist we are? Heard anything about that? About which statue we should take down? How about Black Lives Matter or anything like that? We haven't heard anything about that. The mourning from these disasters are really clarifying what is important to us, doesn't it? During these hurricanes, we saw what our country really is. We saw white people saving black people, black people helping Hispanic people, Asians risking their lives for white people. Color didn't matter. Culture was swept aside. It didn't matter anymore. We had Republicans saving a person from a car with a Bernie bumper sticker and Democrats saving a person from the, a person from the roof and it, literally with America First hat on. So we had all these, these things that separated us were swept aside. I actually heard a commentator said that he thanked, America, thanked God for the hurricanes because God smashed a pie in the face of the media elite and showed him what America really is when the ships are down. Isn't it amazing, that, though, that humanity needs that negative to appreciate the positive? The second thing to me made me think about was, yes, we should pray for their people. Let's face it, if all of us next week are sitting on our roofs desperately praying that somebody comes to rescue us from floodwaters, I want people praying for me. I want people praying, fasting, doing whatever it takes to get God to help get me off that roof. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for them. But the Bible teaches us a principle that is sometimes hard for our American prosperity-minded theology to really understand. And that is is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It's a, it's a verse that we look at a lot when we're doing our solemn assemblies here. And God says this, When I, I, not the devil, not weather, not Mother Nature, it says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or I command, a, command locusts to devour the land, or I send a plague among my people, it says, If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What this verse teaches us is that sometimes seasons of mourning come from God. And these times can come for a variety of reasons. They can come to us individually, they can come to us, our family.
They can come to a community. They can come to a church. Or even sometimes an entire nation. And for those who mourn or are going through a time of mourning, Jesus gives us two promises. Number one, he says, you are blessed. And remember what we said last week. The word blessed here in, in Matthew, you can change that word to happy because that's what it means. Happy are you who mourn. Particularly when you learn to respond in a way that honors God. And the second part of that, you will be comforted. Now look at the second part of that verse. They will be comforted. Morning strips away the noise of life and it brings to clarity the things that we need to see clearly. That allows us to, to examine ourselves and say, God, is this me? Am I mourning because of a decision that I have made? Am I mourning because I have this thing that I know you don't want in my life and I stubbornly refuse to let go? Often that's what mourning does. It allows sin to be removed from our life. And then godliness is formed. You know, this last Wednesday we were debating and, and trying to define what godliness was. And I came up with my own definition. I said, godliness is an increasingly focused awareness of God in our lives. Amen. And letting his nature and his character override our natural dispositions and attitudes toward the things of this world. You can use that if you want, but I want the royalties. <laughs> Godliness, though, is produced by mourning. And it's produced by mourning in the right way. Trusting that God is using whatever situation that is in our lives that is causing this time of sorrow for our benefit. To use it to form himself into our spirits and our lives. The second comfort we find in mourning is it reminds us that this is not our home. I mentioned during Sunday school, if you are a Christian here, you have dual citizenship now. But your first citizenship is to the kingdom of God. I'm a proud American. I wore this country's uniform. I would still die for her today. But my first and primary allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. When you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became an illegal alien, in effect, in a world that's ruled by Satan. And I used to think it was so odd, maybe it's a military mindset, but I used to think it was odd that the Bible focuses so much on our future reward in heaven because in my mind I said we should just be content to serve God because Jesus is so awesome. But the Bible teaches us that God is a rewarder for those who diligently seek him and he gives eternal rewards for that and he wants us to focus on those rewards. Because those rewards that cannot be stolen, they will not rust or decay. They can't be swept aside by wind and waves and hurricanes. And we're going to be able to enjoy those rewards forever. A modern way of putting this would be don't trade all the gold in Fort Knox for a couple crumbs of rotting, moldy bread that's only going to make you sick and it will never satisfy you the way that God can. These are our comforts in times of mourning, focusing on the one who gave up everything to give us eternity. Lastly, Jesus revealed who he is 
to his local synagogue. He used this Bible passage from Isaiah to summarize what Jesus' mission here on earth um, was for us and what his mission is even here and now. Jesus said it in, quote from, in quotes from Isaiah 61, verse 1, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, and comfort for all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, so they, they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let's all stand. God has this promise in mind for you this morning. Some of you have been in mourning for years over something that has happened in your life. You are filled with regret. You are filled with second guessing. You are filled with a sense of, I've messed up and what I wanted will never come to pass. But let me tell you something, that's not God's will for your life. He may use that, that, that mess up. He may use that situation. But he always wants to put you back on the right track. Amen. He always wants to fulfill his will in your life. And no matter what that is, he wants to restore that today. I also want to pray for people this morning that may battle depression. Depression is allowing sinful mindsets to, to be put first and forefront in our mind. And I would ask, Lord, that you would take those sinful mindsets, those sinful thoughts, that fear, that doubt, and unbelief, and cast it into a sea of forgetfulness. And replace it with faith, hope, and love in Jesus' name. Let your word come into their hearts and not the, the lies of the enemy. When I was talking about besetting sin that might have pricked something in your heart that says, yes, I know I have this in my life. I know I want it gone. God, deliver people today. Let them turn from this thing once and for all. And run for you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And finally, if there's been anybody here that doesn't know you, who has never surrendered their hearts and lives to you, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you enable them to do that right now in the power of Jesus' name. That their eyes would be open to see Jesus for who he really is. He's not a curse word. He is the Lord and Savior of the universe. And we thank you, Lord.